to the Conservation Tribe. I'm your host, Blaine Edwards, aka Earth Offline. On this podcast, I talk with a range of conservationists every single week, from scientists, students, creatives, innovators, and everyone in between. I hope this can be a platform for conservationists to share their story, educate, collaborate, and ultimately inspire action. So if you want to join our Conservation Tribe, then make sure to hit subscribe and enjoy the podcast. Welcome back to the Conservation Tribe. Today we are joined by Lydia Rouse and Vim Brown from Focus Conservation. Thank you both for coming on the show. Thank you for having us. So today's episode is going to be focused around wildlife crime, kind of what that actually means, who's involved, why is it a problem, all that kind of stuff. But before we dive into that, can both of you please introduce yourself to the podcast? So my name's William, I go by the name of Vim Brown, and I'm the Chief Executive Officer and the founder of Focus Conservation. Um, I started uh, Focus Conservation in January of 2018. And just a little about my background, I'm a retired Drug Enforcement Administration Special Agent. I served 21 years with the DEA. I finished my career uh, the last four years as an attache working in Nairobi, Kenya. And this is where my interest uh, got into wildlife conservation or illicit wildlife trafficking. And that was because I saw all the overlaps between the networks that move drugs that are involved in illicit wildlife trafficking. And I learned a little about what the NGOs, many of the non-government organizations that work in this field were doing and saw a need for the application of law enforcement to be applied into the conservation field. And I'll, I'll stop right there and lead over to, to Lydia. Lydia? So I am the director of development for Focus Conservation. I grew up spending a lot of time in Kenya, where my mom now lives. And um, living out there is how I got involved in conservation and realized about five years ago that I could be sort of more helpful to the cause actually based in the States here in New York. And so I moved over here to help spread the word and raise money for organizations like Focus Conservation. And I joined WIM um, and this cause particularly because I think going after the wildlife crime aspect is, is a really new and you know impactful way uh, to solve this problem. So I joined Focus Conservation in July of this last year. So yeah, that's, that's me. Yeah, awesome. So it started in 2018. Can you kind of expand a bit on what Focus Conservation actually is and the work that you actually do with the project? Yeah. So, so going back to discussing about how I made that transition from retiring from DEA and then saw this need for law enforcement in the conservation field, I saw that you know, in law enforcement, when you deal with drug trafficking, you're dealing with government organizations that are mandated to, to address uh, drug trafficking. But in the conservation field, there are mandated authorities that work throughout the different countries, but a lot of the work is funded through private donors. So donors that give funds to NGOs, non-government organizations that are assisting mandated authorities within countries. And a lot of these organizations were working in silos. So they were responsible, say there's an organization that sits in, in Zimbabwe or, or wherever. And all they were concerned about was a specific conservation area, a little na- a national park or an area that they're responsible for. 
So when they gathered intelligence and information or they worked with mandated authorities, they didn't pass any of that needed information to other mandated authorities. So it stayed within the silo. It never made it its, its, itself, made the information never crossed over, cross borders. It never crossed internationally. And if you know how these organizations operate, they work globally, they work regionally, they work internationally. They're like drug trafficking organizations. They're the same, and they're, they're cross-bred into either they do drugs, they do weapons, they do uh, human smuggling, all these different things. So I saw a need to provide the services and skills that I had as, as a DEA agent, developing and building investigations outside the United States uh, for prosecution in the United States or working with mandated authorities in many countries across the globe to build investigations and to target the high-level uh, networks that were really responsible for doing the crime. Mm -hmm. And if you look in conservation, you know, a lot of people think of uh, wildlife trafficking as poaching, going after the rhino, going after the elephant, grabbing the pangolin, but they're forgetting about really who's behind all that stuff. So, so I brought in Focus Conservation. I brought in retired DEA, National Crime Agency guys from the UK, people like Lydia with her experience, and brought them into a field. And, and as, as now that they're retired, we use them and use their skill sets to work along mandated authorities. So it's twofold. We build investigations working with mandated authorities, like one of our biggest partners is the United States Fish and Wildlife Service. Secondly, we develop and build what we call wildlife crime units. And I can go into that later on in this, in this, in this conversation, but that's specifically what our skill sets are. And then the importance is breaking down walls and, and building collaboration between all these different entities. Yeah, so you're trying to utilize your previous professional experience and using that to try and apply that, I guess, to wildlife crime. But what does that even mean? What is wildlife crime and what are some examples of that? So like wildlife crime, like I just noted, was that people think of it as poaching of elephants, rhinos, pangolin, but people don't think of it as being really sophisticated criminal network, right? So so it, it, it involves corrupt officials, it, 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 it involves corrupt police, it involves people working outside the conservation areas that are going in and poaching uh, the animals, passing them along and, and getting the horns in the ivory or the pangolin and then moving it from point A to point B, money moving from point A to point B to pay for that movement of the ivory rhino, the shipment of those products overseas, right? So they has to make it to the end user. So it has to be able to be compiled. It has to be secreted into, into uh, packaging, whether it's going in containers or seaports or on planes or on persons. So it's a it's an elaborate network of individuals. And these and these networks operate not just in one city, but they operate globally. So they'll sit, say, in Uganda and have people that work in Mozambique, and they have people that work in Zimbabwe or Zambia, they work in the DRC, they have shippers in Nigeria, they have shippers in Kenya. They have people that work in the network that sit in Asia that have learned to speak the native language, whether it's Vietnamese or Chinese, that are now dealing with the end users themselves, all in the effort of getting profit and maximizing your profit. Getting the dollar. Yeah. Yep. It's the wildlife crime. What people, a lot of people don't realize is it's the fourth largest criminal industry in the world after drugs, arms, and human trafficking. 
Um, it's estimated to be worth um, somewhere between 15 and 20 billion dollars a year. So it's it's a lot of money going out there moving ivory. Most of our cases involve ivory rhino horn or pangolin scales. And pangolins, um, for any of you viewers who don't um, know, is the world's largest trafficked mammal. Looks like a little armadillo or sort of a, an animal that curls up in a ball and is covered in scales. And those scales are then sold in Vietnam and China as a, a delicacy and is involved in Chinese medicine. So those sort of products that we're seeing, the animals poached in Africa and then sold and shipped across borders. Um, and that's where we sort of come in and try and help to crack down. So you mentioned it's the fourth largest kind of criminal industry. And then you mentioned ivory and then the pangolin scales. Are the pangolins and pangolin scales and the ivory trade, are they kind of the two main ones? Well, they're not the most lucrative ones, right? So rhino okay. horn, which is a much smaller item, is is much more lucrative so mm -hmm. you can take a rhino horn and five kgs at a wholesale market may go anywhere between you know 60 70 80 90 thousand dollars at wholesale and then when you bring it back over to the end user you can multiply that end fold uh and you're talking about a much smaller product having to be shipped but if you talk about ivory now you're talking about ornamental right so it's used for ornamental reasons prestige so a whole ivory rhino horn would have much more prestige. Small pieces cut up or used for bracelets or whatever. Um, that's much harder to ship. And then if you think about pangolin, you think about pangolin scales. How many pangolins does it take, you know, to to really fill out some of these seizures that have taken place? We have one ton, one and a half tons of pangolin scales seized in a container. Can you imagine how many pangolins have to be killed to fulfill mm. that? You're mentioning, yeah, the complexity of it. That's probably something that is missed in the public eye. I guess um, when people think of wildlife crime, a lot of them think of the poacher who shoots the rhino or the elephant. And they think that that's kind of the, that's it. That is the wildlife crime is the poacher shooting the elephant and that's it. Um, but I'm no expert in this, obviously, hence why I'm talking to you. But you only have to do a little bit of research to understand that they are just a small piece and the bigger picture. So what are some of the different types of people and groups involved in this interconnected network of wildlife trafficking? I mean, look at it, it's kind of like a drug cartel, right? So you may have a, a boss that heads it and then you have organizational members that play a role in it. And you know, in each one of these organizations, there's responsibilities. There's responsibilities for one getting the items that you need. So it's having the contacts in areas or in different countries where items can be poached, you know, where, where rhino horn can be seized, where elephants can be killed. And then there has to be movement of those items from point A to point B. So take, for example, Uganda. Uganda is, there's very little rhino or elephant that is in Uganda itself, the transshipment point. So it's where a, a very large network that we did an investigation on operated. And that location was very important because it had the, it was close to Kenya, where you had the port of Mombasa, where things could be shipped in and out very easily. You had Kenya as a source country for uh, rhino and, and for ivory, as well as Tanzania. But it, it had the ability for international flights that go in and out of Uganda as well. The, the rule of law was very limited there. So in other words, the ability to prosecute uh, these traffickers, you'd get a fine or you could be spend years in jail, right? So they end up getting a fine. It was a lot, of, but I guess going back to your question. So there's a number of different 
uh, roles that people play within an organization. And as you can imagine, what I saw with this network that operated in Uganda was, you know, they dealt with the Chinese that were operating in Uganda, or they dealt with the Chinese operating in other countries that wanted the ivory and the rhino. However, they wanted to maximize the profit. So they started to say, well, we'll send our people over to Vietnam. We'll send our people over and we'll create our own networks. So we'll take out the middleman. And this is what this is what the specific network did. They were from Guinea. They were from Mali. Uh, they were from Liberia and they were based in in Uganda and they had networks in Mozambique in Uganda, Tanzania, all these different areas. And that's how they operated. So so it's a global thing. And then involved with that is you have to have corrupt officials that allow people to get into the get access to the airport. You know, when they get in trouble, they need officials to get them out of trouble. You know, any in any time that there's operations or work going on in the country, I'm not saying this everywhere in Africa, but there are officials involved and they look at it as a money opportunity. They don't look at it as they hate rhinos or they hate elephants. They look at clearly as a source of making money. Hmm. Lydia, yeah. am I missing anything? No, yeah. So the reality is that the poacher that we think of and often donors want to go after the poacher because it's the most tangible you know, crime is the killing of the animal. But the reality is, is that's really the bottom of the food chain. And um, a lot of those poachers are in desperate situations being offered a lot of money. And as long as there's money flowing from the top, there's always going to be another poacher. Um, so going further up the food chain and going after this sort of kingpins or untouchables, the sort of El Chapos of the wildlife crime world, the trickle down effect that that can have is huge. Um, so, you know, for example, the case that Wim is referencing, the the two guys that were arrested were, the, the charges were a conspiracy to traffic over $7 million worth of ivory, rhino horn and heroin. And to put that in perspective, that's over a hundred dead elephants and 35 dead rhinos in that one case. So that one arrest could have a huge impact just taking those people out of the system. So yeah, the poachers are often the at the bottom of the food chain and you, you mentioned the kingpins. I imagine those kingpins are not only the kingpins for the wildlife trade, but probably these other industries as well. Is that the case? Absolutely. You know, so so that was one of the things, Lane, you know, because I work for the Department of Justice and, and I worked in certain areas within DEA, you know, we had access to a lot of unclassified information and classified information. And, you know, once I left DEA, there was a study that was done by w one of the national intelligence agencies within the U.S. that was able to, to do a study based on the different networks, the different wildlife networks. So basically what they were able to do without going into details was that they were able to show clear links and overlaps between these networks and uh, drug trafficking, human smuggling, weapons trafficking, and in some cases, terrorism. So, you know, those links are done through collection means and, and different types of collection. But but that, I attended a meeting and that was put out there. Uh, I knew about this stuff prior to me leaving DEA. So I think what's important with that being said is that, you know, people have to look at going after wildlife traffickers as like you're going after, you know, human smuggling after going after drug traffickers that you're you're attacking terrorism it, it, it has an effect mm -hmm. these guys are what we call commodity agnostic it you know whatever is a low risk high profit um and 
as women, these guys like to say, it's wildlife crime can actually be this, the soft underbelly for these networks and, and access for us to infiltrate a network that is really wanted for all sorts of reasons. Um, but wildlife crime is an area where we can actually, they're sort of don't have their eye on the ball as much and we can actually, um, you know, infiltrate and make arrests for, for wildlife crime. Um, but again, these are networks that are dealing in all sorts of other illicit activity. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so these networks, they have a lot of money, they have a lot of power. What are the challenges around trying to dismantle these complex networks? That's a great question. You know, I was very fortunate because when I worked for the government, I would go into countries and we'd build investigations. And, you know, if we, if we, if we showed clear links to corrupt officials, you know, uh, whether that was working a drug investigation in Guinea-Bissau or doing work in, in, in Kenya targeting the Akashan network, whatever, you know, we, we had the backbone of the U.S. government behind us. So we were able to build investigations. You had an ambassador that sat there. You had State Department. You had the Department of Justice that could go to that country and say, look, at these individuals have been indicted in the United States and they need to be removed. So you had a lot of force behind you. Now, take me. I'm a retired federal agent. I run a nonprofit. And now I'm working alongside mandated authorities. I, I have a wildlife crime unit that we operate in, in Uganda. And now we're looking at corrupt officials. What's the hard part? It's actually going off there and making that case against the corrupt official. But the good part of it is, you know, we're funded by the U.S. government. So we have backbone of the United States Fish and Wildlife Service. We have USA that funds us. So now we have the ability to go in and have U.S. Fish and Wildlife who work alongside us, who have a very important role and is just as interested in what we're doing, to go into that country and say, look, this investigation is being built and it's being built with, with our, you know, you're assisting us in going after these individuals. We then get the U.S. ambassador involved who can then go to the president in Uganda. So this is exactly what happened with the Chroma investigation. Chroma was removed from Uganda as an undesirable. So he was expelled from the country. He had been indicted in the United States in a grand jury in the Southern District of New York. And Museveni, who was the president, agreed to this and removed him. So these, these are the challenges. But, but if you're just a, a small NGO, non-government organization, working in a small area, and you, you're not working with strong mandated authorities, i.e., whether it's the US government or the British or, or another government, then, and you don't have that support, you're going to fall into problems. So, so these, are the, these are the ways to navigate uh, these issues. And, and I'll give you an example. So if you're working in investigation, well, when I was in Kenya and we were working drug cases, Kenyans didn't really want to arrest Kenyans, right? But they didn't have a problem arresting Tanzanians, right? Vice versa, Tanzanians didn't have a problem arresting Kenyans. So if we were working an investigation that involved Kenyans, we would go down into Tanzania and work with our Tanzanian counterparts and say, hey, you, we'll build a case down here. We'll have these individuals leave Kenya, draw them in, into Tanzania where they will be arrested and indicted and, 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 and shown the court of law. So there's a way to skin the cat, as we say, to get at these different actors. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I think so. So go, Lydia. You go. What I wanted, Wim, if you could go into a bit more is like what an investigation looks like, uh, if that's something you can talk more yeah. about. Basically, what, what we do from building an investigation is similar to how we did it with DEA. We use high level, what we call infield advisors or informants. 
to go in and into a country and penetrate into the network, right? So it's not going in to the conservation area and talking to a poacher, but it's going into, into the greater uh, area, knowing first having intelligence where these networks are operating, kind of similar to who they are, and then sending sources in to penetrate. And the sources get in there and pose as buyers for the illicit market, whether it's ivory rhino horn, right? Or in some cases, they pose as drug traffickers who have an interest in the illicit wildlife market, right? But not as schooled in that field. So this is, this is how we do it. And this is how we assist mandated authorities by doing that. That was what my skill set was when I was with the DEA, was to penetrate into organizations and then build investigations into networks by using sources, being proactive rather than being reactive. In other words, a seizure takes place. Now we get the evidence. We look at the containers. We go interview people. No, in our case, we, we know who the networks are. We penetrate and build the case from that point on. So you have the evidence. It's audio, video, recorded. It's documented. It's processed. It's, it's done through courts immediately, and it's built upon, and that's, and that's how you do it. Mm-hmm. Do you find that wildlife crime is increasing or decreasing? Well, if you, if you asked me uh, about a month ago, I'd say it was decreasing. And, and the reason I would say that is I think that, and this is, Lydia may have an opinion on this as well, but, but I, I've noticed that the donors, the private donors that are out there are understanding that, that if they're giving money to individuals and in, 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 into different uh, uh, players out in the field that are supporting uh, the fight, that these people need to collaborate the information that they get. They need to share the information. They need to build the inve- investigations out further. And that's breaking down the wall of the silos. And I also see that United States Fish and Wildlife, which is one of the lead anti-fighting the illicit wildlife trafficking in the United States, are putting more and more of their attaches overseas. So there's more government agencies coming into this space that has been occupied by non-government agencies. So having government agencies come in, it builds capacity. You're developing intelligence. You're having professionals that are involved in, in law enforcement working in a field rather than having conservationists working in a field that have no law enforcement experience at all. Now, on the flip side, you take COVID-19 that comes in, and now tourism has, has dropped dead in a lot of these countries. A lot of these countries rely on tourism to fund their rangers out in the field to pay for the investigations. So now these rangers who are without money know that there's money across the way because they can go kill a rhino or they can kill an elephant are doing that. So so I think it's changing a little bit. People who are now unemployed um, and in a more desperate situation um, who might not have turned to wildlife crime are potentially more likely to be tempted. So we're definitely in an uncertain time to see, you know, where things go in Africa in terms of poaching and wildlife crime. Okay, so there's a link between the tourism and the poaching. If the if the ecotourism is thriving, then there's less of a incentive for these poachers to, you know, kill a rhino or kill an elephant. Let's not let's let's just take that let's just say look the tourism funds a lot of the programs that fight so in other words, tourism, you know, conservation pays to make sure that the animals are still out there. So all these tour, tour operators that work, work in the Serengeti or the Maasai Mara in Kenya, 
they fund and pay. There's a lot of the taxes that are derived by the government of Kenya or Tanzania or elsewhere. Tourists have to pay for that. And that helps fund the, the Kenya Wildlife Service or the, the Tanzanians to fight this. Yeah, conservancies rely heavily on tourism for their revenue. So a lot of them, up to 25, 50% of their revenue um, comes from tourism. So now scaling back their operations to try and get through this period of time means laying off a lot of their security personnel. So that's, you know, keeping a bare minimum staff of rangers to protect rhinos who are essentially walking around with, you know, something worth gold on them is um, is a difficult task with the budgets that everyone's now dealing with. So security is down and desperation is up in these countries and and people are being laid off not just from tourism but from all sorts of industries so the number of people who are living living day to day paycheck to paycheck in Africa who are now in a really difficult situation puts everything in a in a new perspective when it comes to conservation 100% and you know these people have to survive those people that sit outside these conservation areas who see these tourists coming in there and making, you know, all this money's being made, but really that's a part of the big problem is that, you know, a lot of that money doesn't make its way back to the communities that surround the conservation areas and they need to survive. And, it, you know, as a DEA agent, it's like, you know, do you go after the, the poppy farmer or the coca farmer, or do you put your efforts into targeting the big networks? Right. And I, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't be going after the poachers, but it starts there, but it has to, it can't end there. Yeah, that's addressing, I guess, a symptom as opposed to like the root of the problem. Like, yeah. Yeah. If you focus all your attention on stopping the poachers, you're only addressing one tiny piece of the puzzle. And Brian, yeah. you know, that's one of the things like, you know, with a lot of these NGOs that operate that get money, it's, it's the picture of, the rhino being shot it's the it's the elephant that has the horn cut off it's the calf that's sitting next to the mother that's what people want to give for right but a lot of those organizations that's what they strictly focus on is the poaching and it dies that you know the money dies there and part of the problem is the organizations that operate in the conservation areas they're not the ones that are making these investigations and building them up when you go up to the bigger networks right so oftentimes you know, you'd have, it's, I live in South Africa and a lot of it was, they were, poachers were being killed immediately, right? And that's not the answer to kill the poacher because one is you're killing a family member sitting in, an, in the community that borders the conservation area who now lost a family member who was, the, who was making the money, who now has to send the son in to do that, right? And, and the answer is not to kill, right? It's, it's, it's the rule of law. Use, use force when you need to, rule of law. It's the collection of the evidence that comes out of the pocket litter when you, when you arrest these individuals. It's the evidence that comes out of the phones when you properly get a court order to get the documentation of the phone numbers and the contacts. It's all that. And then moving it up to the next level to the investigators that are getting it, right? It's, it's also using the community that surrounds the area, the conservation area, as your influencers, as your informants. They're the ones that are giving you information. If the rangers are known to just kill, who's ever going to give them information, right? So it's a really complex problem, but it's so compartmentalized that, that you know, if people want to give money, think about where their money's going and, and what role is that money playing through the whole chain? Is it helping the community? 
Is it is it helping the Rangers? Is it building the investigations as it goes up? It's, it's multi. We're hoping that we're seeing a shift, you know, not just um, in terms of operations and how conservation is looking at the issue, but how donors are looking at the issue as well, where an arrest of a poacher is not the end result. It actually can be the beginning of a bigger process. And organizations like Focus Conservation can can look further up that chain and, and help to have an impact where in previously there was very little law enforcement experience to, to do so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there definitely needs to be more awareness around the, the bigger picture what we see on social media, I'm obviously quite active on social media and podcasting and whatnot. The conversation that we're having at the moment isn't really discussed a lot. And yeah, that's, that's, that's risky because we really need to be attempting to tell the big picture because yeah, I kind of feel for a lot of poachers. Obviously, I don't know any of them personally, but a couple of months ago, we were originally going to go to Sumatra and we we're going to film a documentary based around telling the other side of the story of some of the poachers there. And the reason what they do, what they do is because they're trying to survive and feed their family. And so if we could shift some of that blame and that criticism towards trying to address the people that are making them do that in the first place, then I think that would be quite um, helpful to the cause. I'll give you an example. You know, there's a, there's a country in Southeast Africa, right? And oftentimes, and, and Lydia, you lived in Kenya, you, you'll understand this. So, so anytime uh, African officials, they, they get caught getting a hand in the cookie jar, they're doing something wrong. They never get prosecuted, right? They get removed from their location and they're put up to the northern border, okay? So let's take an example. Let's say Mozambique. So you're an officer, you're sitting in Maputo. You've been found to be corrupt. You're not prosecuted, but they remove you. They send you up to northern Mozambique where Nyasa Reserve is. So now this guy has been removed from Maputo. He's put into Nyasa Reserve where you have, you, have, you have elephants, rhino. It's the Wild West. There's no rule of law. You have ruby mines that are operating there. You have oil and gas being operated there. And now you're the king of that area. You're now the head boss up in that area because nobody wants to go work there. And now you're running all these illicit operations up there being untouched. So they're, they're creating the problem. And then you have in, in that area, the same area of Mozambique, you have a lot of Tanzanians and Somalis that come down that operate within the Nyasa Reserve that run all the concessions, right? The little small mom and pop shops that are there. They're making all the money. But the people that live in that community, they don't get a dime of that. So now you've created this unheaval of of misfortune for the community and now what took place i was there in 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 in, uh in mozambique when there was the terrorist attack i was in that city masimba de praia the day before because we were doing a wildlife trafficking operation there and that's when terrorists came in and started shooting everybody and this is what you learn when you operate in that space you see that these communities that surround these areas that are so valuable, either it's the concessions of, of oil and gas or rubies or the wildlife, and they get nothing out of it. And they want something out of it. And that's why the importance is not only, you know, it's not always the rule of law and law enforcement prosecution, but it's working with communities. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting um, sort of shift in a narrative away from demonizing the poacher, which obviously rangers and protecting the animals on the ground is a huge, it's a really important piece of the puzzle. But the guys that we go after are sitting in their 
man, they're, they're making money. They're getting rich off of this. They're not doing it out of desperation. Um, they're doing this and, and often making millions and millions of dollars. And those are the guys that I think we need to be, to be really looking at and going after and, and supporting work to arrest those guys, um, rather than simply demonizing the mm. poacher. The problem with that is these kingpins, they, there's no image, there's no face to that name. Like, whereas a poacher, you've, there's an image, there's a, a rhino with its horn off. Like it's, yep. it's hard for people to emotionally react to something if there's no visual component to it. You know, it, that's, it, that's the tricky part. Um, you talked a bit before about the coronavirus. Um, so I need to bring it up and um, ask what is the link between wildlife trafficking and zoonic diseases like COVID-19? I guess we've known for a long time, and if you look at sort of the reasons why, you know, under the Obama administration, um, they've been given more of a mandate to deal with wildlife crime, obviously national security and conservation reasons. But one of the reasons that has not been getting attention is the global health concern um, and risk that wildlife trafficking poses. So often these pandemics are caused by humans coming in contact with different species sort of unnaturally, if you will. Um, we're not sure the science isn't really there to show what this, what, you know, exactly the rumors out there that it could have been a pangolin or a bat. We don't know for sure. What we do know is that wildlife trafficking is a, is a health concern and often the reason for these pandemics. And so from our perspective, the attention that this is raising and people focusing on this issue um, for something that previously was was sort of a, a, a reason to care that people passed over is hopefully going to um, bring people's attention to this in a new way and hopefully see some some policy change and some behavior change on the consumer side. But yeah, it's, it is a big concern. And, and we talked earlier about how it's impacting people in Africa on the ground. I mean, we're in obviously a very difficult and uncertain time to see how this plays out, but hopefully it brings attention to wildlife trafficking in a, in a new way. It's not just about saving endangered species from extinction it's actually also a health concern yeah from like a selfish perspective this can affect us and we're obviously seeing seeing that we could possibly see more behavior change from this than from all of the animal rights um activists out there trying to get people to care about yeah. the the source you know the animals you know that they're killing when yeah putting it in the perspective of your own personal health is actually probably a more compelling argument in a lot of ways. and i think I, I find that's a good strategy to try and convince anyone is you need to spin it in a way that they can see a personal benefit from from doing it i want to add something blaine because this is pretty interesting it. you know so you you take you take what china's done Right. So the COVID-19 and now they've they've banned all all bush meat and, and all that stuff because of this. And I don't think that China is looking at it from a concern about what it's doing to the health of people within Europe or the United States or in Africa. I think they're looking at it from an economic standpoint. And, and the reason I say that is I've done some work while I've been here in Africa and I've seen a lot of the crossover with the Chinese and the Chinese look at Africa as a resource continent, right? So they come in and I don't know how much time you spent in Africa, but the Chinese are throughout all the countries here, building roads, doing mines, doing uh, gas projects, doing whatever they can, building up their diaspora and they're pulling out the resources back to China. So when a lot of these investigations were done, name and shame investigations by some NGOs, which I think they did a great job because they really pinpointed the Chinese and how involved they are in this illicit trade. 
the Chinese government that operates a lot of these uh, companies that come into Africa, right, because they're communist-owned, they're government-owned entities that come in to do this work. They're getting a bad name, right? So they're getting a bad name within Africa. They're getting a bad name by the individuals that they're trying to meet and greet to exploit the resources. So what they decided to do was to tackle these illicit networks of Chinese operating in Africa that are doing illicit wildlife trafficking and take them out out of Africa and into China. So, and I know this because it, it's happened. They did a removal out of Kenya and they went to the Kenyan government and they said, hey, DEA has done a removal from here, which is one of the cases that I worked on and did. We want to remove some of these bad actors back to China. And they did. And they did this in another East African country where they realized that they were getting a bad name. They're, they weren't doing it because they're trying to stop illicit wildlife trafficking. They were doing it because they, their whole goal was economic and resource. And I, and I think, I mean, you can say that's a bad thing. I think it is, but it's also a good thing that they're looking at it from that standpoint that they are addressing the issue, but they're not addressing it for the right reasons. Jesus. It's all very complex, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It's, it, this is... You know, the thing is, it's not just the poacher crossing over and shooting an elephant or, or killing a rhino. It is so complex, this problem. And people, mm -hmm. the really normal people really have no idea, the public, about really what goes on in the space and what, what's happening. And I, and I say that even from some of the operators that are working in this space, but because they work in a silo and they don't share information and they don't collaborate with other mandated authorities, they really don't have an idea of how vast this problem is and how big it is. Mm -hmm. You touched on it before, um, but I want to kind of bring back to kind of your unique approach to dealing with the many problems around wildlife crime and, and wildlife trafficking. So can you speak to that kind of um, what your actual unique approach is to dealing with this problem and how that may differ to kind of maybe other organizations? I think the idea, the, the things that we do is we deploy the tried and trusted law enforcement guys. We try to work with community engagement and building frameworks, anti-poaching systems. We have guys that have uh, huge amounts of experience in training, whether that's working at the poaching level, doing close combat, and also tying that in with law enforcement. So, I mean, I think that's the, that's the core of it. So I think the important thing is that you're actually sharing intelligence, you're building investigations, you're building wildlife crime units. And, and if I can get put out of, out of service tomorrow, I'm happy because there's no more work. But it's not about the survival of focused conservation. It's working out there and providing a service to the people that need that. And it's not us saying we want the limelight. And that's part of the hard part is that we don't try to beat a drum and say we've done all these great things because really it's, it's the mandated authorities that that's their job to do it. We only support that. Here's the other thing. There is substance behind what we say. So if you look at focus conservation and we say that we've done these things, you can clearly go back and do any research that you want. And you can see that the people that are part of this organization have the skill set, have done this tried and trusted method and have done this themselves. Not saying we can do it. We have done it and we're bringing that to people. And that's not the to toot a horn, but there is a basis between the work that I've done in my career and the guys that work with me and the gals that work with me. 
I was going to say that I think the thing that sets this organization apart is the skill set and experience that it brings to this issue. We're a conservation organization, but um, made up of a team of very experienced law enforcement professionals. And I know Wim doesn't want to like toot his own horn, but these are guys who have arrested some of the world's most notorious criminals, um, including, you know, Wim was involved in arresting the uh, Victor Boot, the Russian arms dealer who the movie Lord of War is loosely based on. Um, and, you know, some, some, some really high level, whether it's drugs, arms dealing. These are these are high level criminals that these guys have experience investigating and arresting and bringing that skill set over to the conservation world is a real game changer. And then secondly, the impact that we're having. I mean, we in Uganda, that unit that we set up there back in July, it's been less than a year and they've already seen over 100 arrests. So the results that we're seeing and the units that we're training and the investigations that we're leading um, really is uh, a game changer. It's something that we're not seeing out of out of these traditional conservation organizations, just purely because um, our this is the experience that our team kind of brings to the issue. And this is the important thing. It's the sharing of the information, right? So it's not, you know, this is one of the things, Blaine, when I first got into conservation, you know, I met with some of these NGOs and they were telling me, I don't know if I can trust you, right? So like, I worked in the law enforcement career my whole life, 26 years. Your word, your word is built on trust, right? You know, you 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 testify in court. You you have all of that. Don't tell me that you can't trust me, right? You can tell me that you don't know if you can work with me, but knowing that if I went to another law enforcement guy that was operating in that space, you have you know that you have to work together, right? It's you have to be able to share that information and work together. And if you don't, then you have to be able to break down that wall of those individuals that don't do it to show them that you're not a harm to them and to open up that space. And I think we've done a pretty good job from our side, breaking down these walls and building relationships. And, I, and I'll end it kind of with, you know, what's important is I, I work with a number of different NGOs and we have a group of us that work together and we know that in order to combat this problem, we have to team together and we have to create a voice together. So we're, we're building an umbrella NGO that would show this collaboration between these various entities and, and show the need for this collaboration, because this is what donors want to see. This is what government agencies want to see, that their money is being spent to collaborate and to work together and not to work in a silo. And I think that's the only way that we're actually going to solve this problem, considering how complex it is. There are so many different moving parts. I don't see how we can solve the conservation problem without communicating, without collaborating with each other. Like it's just not going to happen. So we need to figure out how to do that effectively and at scale. And it's it's the shame because a lot of these, and I'm not going to pick out names, but there's a lot of big NGOs that operate in that space. That it's all about survival. It's all about sustainability with them. And it, and it shouldn't be. Like, you're in this for the animals. You're not in it for yourself. So at the end of the day, you have to do things that are in benefit of combating what the problem is, not sustaining your own ability and building your own name up and, and doing these things. Okay, so you're, you guys are obviously doing some pretty amazing work at Focus Conservation. But... What can we do? Is there anything that we can do, the general public, to help mitigate the growth and impact of wildlife crime? 
Yeah, so I mean, the, the most obvious one is don't buy wildlife products um, like ivory and also helping to spread the word, whether it's talking to your friends and family about what you've learned on this podcast or following us on social media and sharing our content, um, helping us really create a movement around this issue and um, raise awareness and also donating to organizations like Focus Conservation that are on the front line and that are that are really trying to trying to see a change in this in this space so yeah it's it's all about you know getting followers behind us and supporters behind us you can visit our website it's focusconservation.org and if you scroll down there's a few ways that you can get involved you can sign our pledge you can fundraise set up a, a fundraising page to raise money from your friends and family and we're actually also launching an initiative a fundraising sort of campaign each one of our investigations um ends up having a, a name that so we call them sort of operation baseball or what you know we come up with these random names and so we we thought what we would do is each one each investigation when it comes to paying informants our our staff's management fees any travel each investigation costs between five hundred and thousand dollars so if a donor wants to donate more than $500 or above, we'll name the investigation um, anything you want. So it could be Operation Blaine. And then we will send you a summary of that investigation once it's complete to show how it all went down, any results that happened, pictures of any ivory that was seized or arrests that were made um, so that you can really see the impact of your work and kind of have have your name on, you know, one of our operations. So that's one of the ways that you can get involved. And I think it's important to note, like the, like the investigations that she, she's talking about, these are these are some of the spur pop-up investigations that we do quite often in Uganda. So when you talk about 500 to 1,000, that, that money goes a long way in, in the economy in, in Uganda. But when we're developing some of these major investigations, you know, these big transnational ones, then we're talking about, you know, we, we wouldn't actually get people involved in, in funding anything like that because there's a sensitivity to it that, that goes there. But these smaller ones are much easier to do. Mm -hmm. And you're obviously on Instagram as well. That's how we connected. Are you on other social media platforms as well? Yeah, so we're on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. So we're, tr we're trying, we're a small team. So, you know, marketing, community, you know, all that is social media is something we're, we're trying to get more involved in. So mm -hmm. we appreciate the, the shout out. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. Well, I love this podcast because I personally just enjoy having these conversations. And so I get to have these conversations pretty much on a weekly basis. So it's great. Okay. So the final question is, what message do you want to leave the conservation tribe? It's more urgent than ever. Wildlife crime has global ramifications. It's fueling insecurity and corruption. It's risking our public health. It's threatening the survival of some of our planets and most iconic species. So the reason to care about this is greater now more than ever, and we need to act now before it's too late. Thanks everyone for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's episode, then please feel free to subscribe. And if you want to be an extra legend, then please also leave a review. It really does help grow the channel. Thanks again, and I will see you in the next episode.